Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Okay, well, Shabbat Shalom. I want to welcome you, welcome everyone watching uh, virtually on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, uh, and again, I want to uh, thank our amazing music team for that was maybe one of the best times of worship we've had in a long time. So praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we, as you know, we, we started a new series a couple of weeks ago, which is a verse by verse study through the entire Gospel of Mark. Uh, last time we started with uh, Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. Today's part 2. And today we're going to look at Mark 1, verses 9 to 13. So turn with me to Mark 1, verses 9 to 13. And we'll put it up, up, the, up the, on the overhead as well. And uh says this. Mark says this. At that time, Yeshua came from Nazareth, or Nazareth, in Galilee, and was immersed by John in the Jordan. Just as Yeshua was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. And angels attended him. Now as we discussed last time. Everyone wants to relate to Yeshua on their own terms. But a Yeshua that you, in essence, make up, a Yeshua that, that you create, a Yeshua who conforms to what you would like to think he should be, he can't challenge you. He can't contradict you. He can't convict you. Uh, and therefore, he can't change you. If you want a Yeshua who can really transform you, you must find the real Yeshua. A Yeshua with his own independent reality. A reality that you don't make up. That comes to you from the outside. Uh, and the way to find this Yeshua, the real Yeshua, a Yeshua with his own independent objective reality is to study the New Testament Gospels. Uh, and on the overhead here, what we're going to learn in this passage, uh, from the, this, three things, is that number one, there's a dance. Number two, and the greatest thing of your life is to be in that dance. And number three, that Yeshua is the one who can bring you in. So number one, there's a dance. You've got to be in that dance. And Yeshua is your ticket, your invitation to that great dance. So first, what do I mean when I say that there's a dance? Well, look at uh, Mark 1, verses 10 to 11. Just as Yeshua was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open, and, a spirit, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice comes, came from heaven, you're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Now for us who are familiar uh, uh, with the Gospels, and familiar with characterizing the, the Holy Spirit being characterized as a dove, this doesn't seem all that unusual. But in the first century in Jewish culture, this was very rare at the time. In fact, there's only one place in the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Covenant Scriptures, where the Spirit of God is likened as a dove. And even then, it's not in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not in the Hebrew Scriptures per se, but rather, it's in the Aramaic Targums. 
The Aramaic pilgrims were these rabbinically approved paraphrases of the Hebrew Scriptures, sort of like our living Bible, uh, which were written in Aramaic, which was the lingua franca, the common language of the day for Jews living in, in the Middle East. Uh, and most Jews in the ancient Near East, they spoke Aramaic, uh, not Hebrew as their everyday language. That's also why we see so many Aramaic words in the Gospels themselves. Now, in the creation account, Genesis 1-2, put on the overhead, Genesis 1-2, it says, where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, this Hebrew verb for hovered also can be translated to flutter. The Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters. And the rabbis, when, when they translated this, and they wrote the Aramaic Targums, with this on the overhead, uh, they translated Genesis 1-2 this way. And the earth was, was without form and, and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. So here's the creation. We see three parties in this creation account here in Genesis 1. Uh, there's God, there's God's Spirit, and there's God's Word. Uh, he creates through His Word. He speaks, and it exists. Now, God's word is not some uh, inanimate object, uh, but it's a living being in and of itself. This comes out very, especially very powerfully in the Aramaic, uh, where God's word, his memra in the Aramaic, is seen throughout the scriptures as actually being God himself and acting as God, and yet at the same time, separate from God. Uh, even as we read, read in John 1, that the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, and just as John tells us that God's word, God's word created all things, in the same way in the Aramaic Targums, God creates through his memra, through his word. Uh, and John tells us this word became flesh uh, and dwelt among us in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. So just like in Genesis 1, we see God's God and God's spirit and God's word uh, creating the world. And the same way we see in John 1, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit acting to redeem the world. And what Mark here at Mark chapter 1 is, is deliberately doing uh, with his reference to the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit in the form of a dove, being here all together at the baptism, at the immersion of Yeshua, what, he, what he's doing is he's drawing us back to the original creation account where we, we also have the Father, uh, the Word, uh, the Memra, the Son, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove, all active in the creation of the world. And the overhead here, Mark's saying, uh, just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, so also the recreation of the world, the salvation of the world, the renewal and redemption of the world, which is beginning now, is also a project of the triune God. Creation and redemption is a project of the triune God. Now, the biblical doctrine of one God manifesting himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's admittedly a difficult concept. It's a mystery. The biblical doctrine is not tritheism, which is three gods, and it's also not unipersonalism, which is one God who sometimes takes this form, sometimes takes that form, different forms in different places. No. The biblical doctrine of the triunity of God, of the Godhead, is that there's one God eternally existing in three persons who know one another and love one another. So God is not more fundamentally one than he is three, 
And he's not more fundamentally three than he is one. Uh, and on the overhead, uh, this doctrine of the triunity of God, it's bristling and exploding with wonderful, life-shaping, glorious implications. And the overhead, the first implication is this. is uh, If it's true that this world has been created in the image of the triune God, then ultimate reality is a dance. When Yeshua comes up out of the water, the Father envelops him, covers him with words of love. Mark 1.11 You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And the Spirit uh, covers and envelops him with power. Yeshua, did not, by the way, did not do his miracles in his divine nature. He did his miracles in his human nature as anointed and filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. On the overhead. And the Bible says that when you see what Mark is showing us here, you're looking into the very heart of reality. The very meaning of life. And the very essence of the universe. Because this is what's been happening in the very interior of the Godhead for all eternity. On the overhead. And it's a dance. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, glorify one another. John 17 tells us that each one glorifies the other. Now, what does this mean? C.S. Lewis and another uh, theologian, uh, Cornelius uh, Plantagena, uh, uh, Plantinga, sorry, they put it like this. First, C.S. Lewis, in the overhead, he says this. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He's not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a drama, almost a kind of dance. And then the overhead, Cornelius uh, Plantinga, he says this. See, the Bible says that Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify one another. That means the persons within God exist, commune with, and defer to one another. Each harbors uh, the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with self-giving and love for the other. And then finally, back to C.S. Lewis again. What does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. For the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each of us. They are the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And there's no other way to the happiness for which you have been made. Wow. Only C.S. Lewis can put it like that. Now, why do these famous theologians talk about the dance? Here's why. If you're going to graphically, physically depict selfishness, uh, selfishness is stationary. A self-centered life is a stationary life. Uh, It's a static life. It's not a a dynamic life. Because a self-centered life wants everything and everyone to orbit around you. You you might, yes, you might give to the poor. Uh, sure, as long as it makes you feel good about yourself. And doesn't cut too much in, into your current lifestyle. You might help people uh, and have friends and relationships. Uh, as long as there's no compromise of your individual interests. Uh, of what makes you happy. And of your needs and wants and desires. Self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end. And the end 
the non-negotiable is what I want. Uh, it's what I like. It's my interests over anybody else's. Yeah, I'll, I'll interact with people, sure, but everything must orbit around me. But the Godhead is utterly different on the overhead. Instead of self-centeredness, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are characterized in their very essence by mutually self-giving love. Father, Son, and Spirit, each person in the Godhead does not insist that any of the others revolve around them. No. But rather they center on one another, not themselves. They glorify one another. They adore one another. They serve one another. They defer to each other. They put the interest of the other above their own interest. Which means that every one of them voluntarily goes out to, to circle and to orbit around the others. Instead of saying, no, you orbit around me, they each voluntarily orbit around the others. Now think about this. Let's say you've got five people up here, six, ten, a hundred people up here up front. Uh, if every one of them wants to be self-centered, uh, there can be no dance. Because they're all insisting, oh, you dance around me. No, 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 you dance around me. <laughs> What's the result? <laughs> there's nothing to watch. There, there's no dance on the overhead. But when you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each one is moving out towards the others, instead of making the others come to them, orbiting around the others, instead of insisting that they orbit around them, then you've got to dance. A dynamic, pulsating, beautiful, divine dance of love. A dance of infinite joy. Each one pouring endless love and adoration and glory into the others. Each one deferring to the others. Each one serving the others. Each one preferring the interests of the others over their own. Now that's the dance. Now what are the implications for us of that? If that is ultimate reality, if a divine dance of self-giving love, it's been going on for all eternity, if that's the God who made the universe and who created you and me, do you realize the implications of this truth? And there are awesome implications. Implications that are utterly unique to Messianic Judaism and biblical Christianity. I mean, if you were making up a religion, would you ever make up something like the triunity of God? <laughs> Absolutely not. And this alone is strong evidence that no one made up Messianic Judaism, no one made up Yeshua faith. Because if you, if you were making up a doctrine of God, well, first of all, you would never think of this. <laughs> who would think of this? And who would believe it if it hadn't been revealed? Messianic Judaism, biblical Christianity, will never be able to compete with made-up religions because made-up religions don't have to deal with facts. But we must deal with the facts that God has revealed to us about himself in the scriptures. And what the scriptures reveal about God makes a shoe of faith utterly unique. And the implications of this doctrine, if you take them to heart, make this truth something that will utterly change everything about your life. For example, if God is only unipersonal and not tripersonal, do you realize the implication of what that means? It means until the world began, there was no love. Because love is something one person has for another. So until God created the world and created other beings, a unipersonal God did not love. 
Which means that love is not and cannot be the essence of a unipersonal God. Relationship is not the essence of that God. Rather, the essence of that God is power uh, and might and greatness. Uh, and therefore, uh, um, belief in a unipersonal God, such as Islam, such as uh, rabbinic Judaism, belief in a unipersonal God tends to create things like Phariseeism and absolutism. Whereas, whereas on the other end of the spectrum, secularism, which says there is no God, that produces relativism and lawlessness. But the biblical doctrine of the triunity of God is dynamic and includes within it both unity and diversity. This understanding of God, it's just off the spectrum of any other religion or philosophy. The idea of a unipersonal God, it also would lead, does lead to radical individualism. Because the essence of this God is that he's an individual. And therefore the most important thing in the world are my individual rights. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, in polytheistic cultures, the family, not the individual, is all important. Uh, the tribe and the clan are all important. So a unipersonal God makes an idol out of the individual. And polytheism makes an idol out of the tribe or the family. But the biblical God, the triune God, He's not more fundamentally an individual than a community, nor more fundamentally a community than an individual. And this leads to a unique understanding of human society. Let me give you a very practical implication in the overhead. If this world was made by a triune God, and if we're made in his image, then relationships of love are ultimately what your life is all about. In contrast, in that there is no God, and the secularists are right, and you hear just, just by blind chance, and you just evolved by uh, natural selection, then there's no such thing as love, uh, the way you and I understand it. Rather, it's just a chemical condition in your brain. And so today, the evolutionary biologists, they claim there is nothing in us except what prevailed in the survival of the fittest, because those traits helped your ancestors somehow to survive, and they pass those genetic codes onto you. And therefore, if you feel love, it's only because there's some chemical reaction in your brain that helped your ancestors to survive and to pass on your genetic code uh, with just the right mates uh, to the next generation. And that's all that love is, they say. It's just a species survival mechanism. It's nothing but chemistry. So the secularist position is that there's no such thing as love. Uh, and if there is a God, but he's only unipersonal, then there was a vast time of eternity past where there was no love, as there were no other persons, no other beings, and, there, and therefore no other relationships. Because love is something that one person has for another. And so if there's only one person in the Godhead, there was no such thing as love until he decided to create the world. And therefore, if God is only unipersonal, love is not his essence. It only comes in second. Love becomes secondary, peripheral. It's not the essence of who God is. And therefore, it's not the essence of reality, of the essence of who we are, of man, made in his image. On the overhead. But if, from all eternity, beginninglessly, endlessly, ultimate reality is a community of persons within the Godhead, knowing and loving one another... But that means that ultimate reality 
is all about love relationships. And that message is utterly unique to Yeshua faith. Our secular society, in contrast, it says relationships, they're nice, as long as they don't get in the way of my personal agenda and my individual rights and freedom. Yeah, relationships are nice, but it's really important to things like money and power, achievement, accomplishment. And in our modern world, especially if you live in the really big cities, if you want to do really well and reach the top, there's very little time for relationships, and certainly not for family. And this is especially true during your initial, your initial money-making uh, and advancement periods uh, of time where you're trying to climb the ladder and make a name for yourself and establish yourself. But if you put money and accomplishment and work and career over your spouse and children and over deep involvement in a faith community where you develop accountability and responsibility, in the end, you will dash yourself on the rocks of reality. Because love is ultimate reality. On the overhead, when Yeshua said you have to lose yourself to find yourself, he was only telling you what the Father, Son, and Spirit have been doing already for all eternity. You're never going to get a self. You're never going to get self-esteem. You're never going to get a sense of self by standing still and making everything else orbit around your interests. Unless you're willing to experience a loss of options. And the surrender and limitation that comes from being in committed, deep relationships, including sometimes loss of money, loss of time, unless you're willing to put relationships first, you're out of touch with ultimate reality. And eventually you're going to come up empty. It's going to be ashes. You're going to one day, you're going to be dashed on the rocks of reality. That's the implication of who God is. He is, he is an eternal community of mutual, other-oriented, servant love within the very essence of the Godhead. The reality is this world was not created by a unipersonal God. And it wasn't the process of an impersonal God that's an illusion. It's not the accident of violent random forces. But the world was made by a God who's a community of persons who know and love each other from all eternity. This world is a divine dance. A dance. Indeed, what do you think the planets orbiting around the sun, what do you think that is? Uh, What do you think the stars wheeling around the galaxy are? What do you think the earth rotating on its axis is? And the seas roaring back and forth? uh, And then birds rolling around the sky? It's a dance. It's all a divine dance. And we are made in the image of this God. A God who's not just an individual, he's a community. A community engaged for all eternity in this divine dance. On the overhead, so number one, there is a dance. Number two, we need more than anything else to be in this dance. You were made in your relationships with others for mutually self-giving love, not self-centeredness. And if you live a self-centered life, you will eventually come up ashes. Let's go a bit deeper. You were made to enter into this divine dance. As we said, the Father, Son, and Spirit are always glorifying one another. To glorify on the overhead, to glorify someone or something involves both beauty and duty. Beauty means what? It means adoring. 
It means having your imagination captured by, finding gorgeous, praising, enjoying, doting on. You're not glorifying something unless you find it beautiful for what it is in and of itself. And glorifying involves not just beauty, but also duty on the overhead. You're not glorifying someone if you're only serving them conditionally. If you say, yes, I'll serve, uh, I'll help, I'll do this, as long as I'm getting some kind of benefit out of it. That's not glorifying the person. Uh, That's not circling them. That's not the dance. Uh, That's not orbiting around them. That's getting them to orbit around you. Now, a lot of you, you can look unselfish because you're the type of person who, who can't say no. You see, so you say yes to everything. And people take advantage of you. And everyone says, oh, he's such a selfless person. And she is so, so self-giving, uh, so altruistic. But if you have no boundaries and you let people use you and you can't say no, do you think you're really doing that out of love, true love for that for other people? No. You're doing it out of your own need, out of your own neediness. You need it. And therefore, in a sense, you are using them. You may be serving others out of fear and out of cowardice. But to glorify is not to use people to fulfill your own needs as as you are serving them, but it's to unconditionally serve them. Not because you're getting anything out of it, but just because of who they are. Now, because God does not seek his own glory... He seeks the glory of others because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all circling each other, glorifying each other, adoring each other, praising each other, serving each other, deferring to each other because they're giving glorifying love to one another. Because of all this, God is infinitely happy. He is well pleased. Now, if you find, if you find someone that you adore, that you think more of than anyone else in the world, and if, you do, and if you would do anything for them, and then now if you discover that that person feels the same way about you, doesn't that feel great? That's heaven. And it's heaven because its origin comes from the very nature of who God is. Because that's the love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been having for all eternity. God is infinitely happy within himself because each person of the Godhead does not seek his own glory but rather seeks the glory of the others. That's why he's infinitely happy. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they've been mutually doing this with one another for all eternity. Okay, now you may ask this question. If God does not seek his own glory, but the glory of others, why then do we nonetheless read throughout the Bible where God says to us, glorify me, serve me, adore me, praise me? How do we reconcile this? I would say this. Of course the Lord wants us to glorify him, praise him, adore him, serve him unconditionally. But now do you see why? It's because he wants your joy. Why would a God like this create the world? If he was a unipersonal God, you might say he created the world so that he could have beings who would give him worshipful love. But he already had that within the Godhead for all eternity. And he has it far better in himself, uh, in far better and far more powerful forms than we will ever give to him. You see, if he was a unipersonal God, he might be creating the world in order to get the joy and the infinite happiness of glorifying love. But he already had that 
So that can't be the answer. So why would God create us? And the answer must be that he created us not to get, but to give us his joy. He must have created us for us to get into the dance, to invite us in, to say, if you glorify me, if you set your your entire life on me, if you find me more beautiful just for who I am in and of myself, then you will step into the dance, the divine dance. And this is what you were made for. You were made not just to believe in me uh, in some general way, not just to be spiritual uh, in some general way, not just to pray uh, when things get tough, uh, but you were made to center everything in your life on me. To think of everything in terms of your relationship with me. To obey me unconditionally. That's what you're made for. So it's time, let me ask you this morning, are you in the, the dance? Are you in the dance? Or do you just believe in God? Are you in the dance? Or do you just pray to him when you're in trouble? Or when you want something, you need something? So on the overhead, number one, there is a dance. Life is a dance, is a dance. Number two, you need more than anything else to be in this divine dance. Because that's what you were built for. And then finally, number three, how then do we get into this dance? And the answer is that Yeshua is the one, the only one, who can bring you in. But you must give him the lordship of your life. That's all he asks. Not for you to do some great deed, but to surrender your life to him. And let him then direct and empower and regenerate your life. And what does this entail? On the overhead, I once heard it broken down like this. There are two commitments that this, this lordship entails. Number one, I promise to obey everything God says, whether I like it or not. And number two, I promise to thank God for everything he sends into my life, whether I like it or not. I promise to obey everything he says and to thank him for everything he sends, whether I like it or not. On one level... On one level, if we're honest, these are the most frightening commitments we could be asked to make. It's the divine invitation to the dance, and yet we're scared. It is an invitation to, instead of staying stationary and saying, God, I'll pray to you, I'll come to shul, uh, uh, if you do all these things for me, if you give me health, you give me the things I want. Instead of that, it's an invitation to the dance, and we're scared. It's an invitation to orbit around the Lord, not ourselves. So how do we get into this dance? It's through Yeshua, and here's why. Look at what Yeshua does in our passage. Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. And once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Hasatan, by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. The temptation. The temptation account uh, that Mark and the other Gospels are giving us, it's actually a recapitulation of the history of the world in general. And the history of Israel and Moses and the Exodus in particular. Because the Gospels are a Jewish book. And Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, he is the second Adam. He's the new Israel. He's the one man, perfect recapitulation uh, and representative of Israel. He's the prophet like unto Moses. And he's leading the new exodus, the final exodus from slavery into the kingdom. 
Now, in general, back in the creation account, after the Spirit moves over the face of the waters, and God speaks the universe into being, and history's launched, what's the very next thing that happens? Satan and the temptation in the garden. And now here, echoing Genesis 1, and launching Yeshua's ministry, public ministry, is the now the inauguration of a new creation. The progenitor of a new humanity. Yeshua, he comes up out of the water. The spirit comes upon him. God speaks. And then the same thing as Genesis all over again. Satan, temptation, trial, wilderness. But notice how the differences between the first Adam and the second Adam, Yeshua. The first Adam was in a lush garden, right? With food galore. The second Adam, where is he? He's in a howling, barren wilderness. The first Adam was in intimate companionship with his wife. The second Adam is all alone in the wilderness. The first Adam was with these tame and docile creatures who were in harmony with men. Their animals were vegetarian at that time. The second Adam, Yeshua, he's out now with the wild beasts. The first Adam was in a perfect environment, and he had failed. The second Adam was in a terrible environment, starving, 40 days without food. When the temptation comes, he was deprived of all comfort, deprived of all uh, security, and yet he succeeded. Great differences. There's also some great similarities. Look at the similarities between these two tests. The point of both tests was the same. Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, has God really said? And then he says, you know, uh, God's wrong. You'll not surely die. And say, so you're going to become like God. That was the temptation for Adam and Eve. And Eve fell for it. And then Adam ate. So the issue that was presented to Adam and Eve was, are you going to believe and obey God's word? Satan tempted Yeshua in the very same way. And Satan's ultimate temptation was to offer Yeshua a way to receive the kingdom without having to go to the cross. He offered him all the kingdoms of this world without having to go through suffering and death and taking the sins of mankind upon himself to atone for them. And Yeshua defeats every temptation of Satan with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And by the way, here's a little side note. Uh, Yeshua being the second Adam also answers this vexing question of why he submitted to John's baptism. You know, because John told Yeshua, you're sinless. You have no need of being baptized, you're being immersed. But Yeshua came as our representative. His work was vicarious and substitutionary. Uh, he identifies with us. And so even though he was sinless, he nonetheless submitted to the baptism to identify with sinful humanity and to fulfill all, all righteousness. Hallelujah. He, he is our perfect representative in that immersion. Now, notice also uh, that the, this temptation is not over at the end of our passage, but continues on throughout his entire ministry and comes to a head, comes to a climax in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the ultimate anti-garden, the ultimate anti-type to the Garden of Eden. Now, think of these two tests. The first Adam was told this, obey me about the tree, don't eat from the tree. Why? Well, as you've seen, God created us to orbit around him, to serve him unconditionally, to center our lives on him, to be in this divine dance. And when God says, don't eat from the tree, what's our first response? Why not? (laughs) And by the way, 
God never says why not, does he? You know why? If you obey God because you know it will benefit you, then what you're doing is you're being stationary. You're saying, okay, this makes sense to me. Now I see why I should obey the Lord and not eat from the tree. Guess what? You're being stationary. You're being the center of your universe. God's just a means to an end. So you decide when it's in your best interest to obey. And if this is your attitude, then God is not your ultimate end. He's not an end in and of himself. What God is saying is, don't eat from this tree just because you love me. Just because I say so. Just for me. And we failed. Adam, who was the best of us, our perfect human representative, living in a perfect environment, failed. And Satan continually, even today, encourages you and me to fail. He says, this idea of self-giving love, where you make yourself totally vulnerable, where you orbit around other people, it'll never work. Now, we can all too glibly, we can say, Adam and Eve, what idiots they were. Why did they listen to Satan? And yet we entertain Satan's lies in our heart all the time. Because we are also guilty of not trusting God. Of not believing he has our best interest at heart. And so we're afraid of totally trusting him and obeying him. We buy into the the original lie of Satan. uh, The lie from the Garden of Eden that God's not really for us. And therefore we can't totally trust him. And so our default mode is to be stationary. To be at the center of our own universe. And that's what Satan wants. He wants us to focus on ourselves and to be self-centered and self-absorbed. And when our relationship with God unraveled in the Garden of Eden, notice how all other relationships unraveled as well. Relationships politically between nations. Relationships socially between races and classes. Relationships personally between friends and spouses and families. Relationships are always blowing up. Why? Because we all want to be the centers. The center of attention, the center of our own little world. It's all about us. But a solar system in which every planet insists that the other planets revolve around it, that's not a solar system. (laughs) That's a solar cataclysm. (laughs) And likewise, a world in which everyone says, everyone's got to revolve around me, that's a world in which the dance is impossible. But God didn't leave us there. The Son of God was born into this world. The second Adam. So God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree. And God says also to the second Adam, obey obey me about the tree. Only this time the tree is a cross. On the overhead. God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree and you'll live. And he didn't obey. And God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree and I'll crush you to powder. And he did obey. Now, when Yeshua died on the cross to pay for your and my sins, what was he getting out of it? You may say, well, he was getting this glorifying love from us, right? But no, he already had that within the Godhead itself from all eternity. He already had glorifying love. So what did he get out of us? What did he get for dying for us? What was his benefit? Nothing. Which means that he did it not to glorify himself. He did it to glorify us. He circled us. He orbited around us. 
It was what he was doing for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. But now Yeshua moves out and he does it with us. And he honors us. And he centers on us. He unconditionally loves you. He loves you not because he gets anything out of it. Just because for who you are to him. If you see this. And if it becomes a beautiful thing to you. You've begun to enter the dance. Because Yeshua died on the tree. He was coming to you. And he was saying, shall we dance? When Yeshua went to the cross, he moved out towards you and invited you to the, da- to the dance. And the degree that this moves you, it gets you out of your fear and begins to break apart the satanic lies that are within you. Uh, and of our hearts then, all these lies that would keep your heart stationary, if you begin now to orbit around him and he orbits around you, you get pulled into the life of the triune God. And that's how it's done. Yeshua moved towards us on the cross. That's the beginning of the dance. And then we move out towards him. How? In repentance. In faith. We surrender our lives to Yeshua. And then he moves out towards us again. It's called justification by faith. And this dance continues on as we draw to him and he draws to us and it is increasing in sanctification. He dotes on us. He delights in us. Not because of our good works, but just because of who we are in him. John seventeen twenty two. Yeshua on the overhead. Yeshua says this, Father, I've given them the glory that you gave me because you loved me before the, before the foundation of the world. Yeshua glorifies us. And then he goes on to say this in the next verse, John seventeen twenty three. I pray that the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them. This is amazing. Even as you have loved me. Yeshua says, if you are in him, then the father loves you even as much as he loves his own son, Yeshua himself. Wrap your brain around that. When you say, father, accept me, not because of my record, but because of Yeshua's record, I repent of my sins. I put my trust in, in Yeshua and what he's done for me. Father, accept me not for my sake, but for Yeshua's sake. Then at that point, Yeshua has moved out to you. And you've moved out towards him in repentance and faith. And that God moves towards you in this divine dance. And he delights in you. And you become precious to him. You're now as beautiful to him as a gorgeous bride is to her groom. That's what the Bible says. And now out of this new creation heart, you start to obey him. You start to live a new life. Motivated by the assurance of his love. Do you see this divine dance? And sometimes when you pray uh, and you're in a hard time, Romans 8.16 tells us the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And Romans 5.5 tells us the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. And what this means is that sometimes when we're in trouble and we pray, we hear in the depth of our being, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. You are my child whom I love. My holy brothers and sisters, you cannot survive without being part of this divine dance. You will die if you are not part of this dance. 
Now, what is that? let's close with this. What does this mean practically? If creation is the product of the triune God, and redemption is also the product of the triune God, it means at least these three things. Number one, at the overhead, you will never fully come to grips with a God like this as an individual. You've got to get involved in community. And as things are going to get worse and worse in these last days, community is going to become more and more important. You cannot just come to shul for the goodies and the blessings of of listening to the music and listening to the message. You've got to be an active part of a community. A community of people and families who are doing life together and showing Yeshua to each other. How can you know a God who is a community except by being an active part of a faith community? So stay for lunch and fellowship. Attend the youth group. Be in the poem play. Participate in the men's and women's groups and the Bible studies. Get in a home group. Be part of the Zoom Tuesday night Bible studies and prayer. Get together outside of the shul. If you temporarily need to watch us on YouTube, make sure your whole family is there watching with you. So number one, be involved in the Etzheim community. Do not isolate yourself. Do not be a lone ranger. Do not abandon us and your fellow sheep. We need each other. Number two, second implication of the divine dance is you've got to learn how to praise. Make sure your prayer life is filled with praise. Make sure that the all-important praise part of your prayer life doesn't get squeezed out by your petitions and requests. On the overhead, if creation and redemption are the result of, of, of a community of divine persons within the Godhead who have an infinite joy in mutually self-giving love, then in essence, we were all rejoiced into being. And thus, praise and worship and joy are what life is all about. And if you're willing to learn how to praise God and rejoice in the Lord and enjoy God and adore Yeshua for what he's done for you and what he's done in you, then you'll be able to move out into the world, no longer griping about everything and finding fault with others, but whether you will become a praising person, an affirming person, a person filled with inner joy, regardless of outward circumstances. I love this phrase from C.S. Lewis in the overhead. He says this. He says, praise is inner health made audible. (laughs) So on the overhead, takeaways of the divine dance. Number one is community. Number two is praise. Number three, obedience when tested. Give your life to Yeshua, even if it will cause problems. Notice that of the four Gospels, only here in Mark, but to say that Yeshua was with the wild beasts in the wilderness. Neither Matthew or Luke or John mentioned this. So why does Mark mention that in his temptation, Yeshua was with the wild beasts? Well, at the time that Mark was writing this, for the first of the four Gospels, uh, he was writing to the first century believers, they were being persecuted and tortured and thrown to wild beasts. And so the Messianic believers, they were tempted to say, well, instead of unconditionally obeying the Lord, maybe I should compromise. So I won't be thrown to the wild beasts. And Mark here is saying, no, don't shrink back when trials and tribulations come. He will walk with you in the lion's den. Obey him unconditionally. Praise him without ceasing. 
Serve him in community. Amen. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for this cosmic vision at Yeshua's immersion and temptation of who you are as our triune God and what we are called to be as your faithful servants, ever praising and obeying you and living out our new creation lives in covenant community with your other fellow disciples. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for revealing to us that the very heart of the universe is a divine dance. A dance that existed for all, from all eternity within the Godhead. And a dance that you now invite us to join in and be part of. Where we don't insist on being the center of our own little world, but rather we joyfully orbit around you and around other believers in mutual, other-oriented, self-giving love. Lord, thank you for this awesome promise. That if we truly repent of our ways and if we truly embrace you, that our ultimate future will be one of, of endless, infinite joy. Because you promised us that for your followers, we're headed towards a world of love. A new heavens and earth. Uh, the, 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 the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, a world of joy and love and peace and fellowship. And the transforming power of your perpetual presence. We are bound for this. Nothing less to share in the glory and blessings of the triune God himself. And so we thank you and praise you. And we ask you for help now to live according to this beautific vision of one day beholding you, Yeshua, face to face. And we pray this all in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.